So when things are falling apart in the emergency yeah. department and the charge nurse comes to you and says, do something, and you've spoken to your consultant services and you've done what you can, and it seems that there's nothing else you can do, there is always something you can do. Find the thing that you can do. Find the bottleneck that you can address and address it. The real issue in access block are the patients who need to lie down, who need more complex care. Many of them eventually need a bed and they can't get upstairs and we can't get the next patient who needs a stretcher or place to lie down. If you asked an inpatient nurse or physician who's accountable for the admitted medical patient in the emergency department, they'd say, well, the emergency department is. It's a bit like fighting fire by switching off the fire alarm or treating exsanguinating hemorrhage by catching the blood in a cup so it doesn't spill on the floor. We have a very provider-centric system, and there are solutions out there, but we have to not only provide incentives and accountability, we also have to challenge people on their entrenched self-interest and way they approach their work. It's a maldistribution that fails any sort of ethical sniff test that I could come up with. I think we're understanding this better, we're communicating it better, and I think we should have a sense of hope rather than um, a sense of despair. EM Cases sent out a survey to a few thousand listeners like you last year. In it, we asked what topics you would like covered in future main episode podcasts. By far, the number one request was, you guessed it, ED overcrowding. The ED overcrowding problem is pervasive, year-round, and across many hospitals. I'm almost 20 years into my career, and the ever-increasing volumes of patients in the waiting room lining the hallways, and waiting for a hospital bed at North York General, where I work, seem to be a major contributor to an increasingly challenging work environment and fight against burnout. My guess is that many of you might share similar challenges. In this podcast, we hope to give you a deeper understanding of the root causes of overcrowding from a systems, hospital, ED, and individual doc perspective which may help to alleviate some of your frustration and anxiety around overcrowding. We'll offer some solutions to overcrowding in the same four spheres, government systems solutions, hospital solutions, ED solutions, and what you can do as an individual healthcare provider to alleviate overcrowding. We'll break things down into ED input, throughput, and output of patients, and see what we can improve each step of the way. Our hope is that what you learn from listening to this podcast will inspire you to change your individual practice on your next shift and advocate for change in your ED, hospital, and government so that your job satisfaction improves, you're better able to take care of your patients, and ultimately improve the lives of our patients and colleagues. And joining us today with a collective ED clinical and leadership experience of about 100 years, I would guess. We have three of Canada's leading experts on the topic of ED overcrowding. My good friend and mentor, Dr. Howard Ovens, who you may remember from our episode on end-of-life care and the one on uh, medical clearance of the psychiatric patient, the lead author of the EM Cases Waiting to be Seen blog, former chief of the ED at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, the man who knows pretty much more than anyone else in Canada when it comes to the intersection between government and emergency medicine. Welcome, Howard. Thanks, Anton. Delighted to be back again. And new to EM cases, we have Dr. Grant Innes and Dr. Sam Campbell. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks. 
Dr. Hannes, so could you just give us a little bit of uh, your professional background? Many emergency physicians in Canada know who you are already, but we're an international audience. So give us a little bit of your professional background and uh, what your interest in particular in overcrowding is. Well, I trained a long time ago in Denver under uh, Dr. Peter Rosen, who probably most people have heard about. And Peter's a very strong personality. And when you leave Denver after residency, you kind of leave as a missionary for emergency medicine. So early on, I got quite involved in research and uh, eventually in leadership. And I remember a day working in St. Paul's Emergency Department, probably 15 years ago, and I was working in the waiting room, and there was about 15 stretchers out there. There was uh, patients puking in wastebaskets, and I had the closest thing that I've ever had to a panic attack. And I thought, you know, i got to either walk out these doors and mail in my resignation, or I have to try and do something about it. So... I guess that was around 2002, I started getting involved in trying to figure out how to solve overcrowding. And since then, I have been a department head in Vancouver, a department head in Calgary, and uh, fortunately now I've mostly abandoned the administrative uh, work and work half-time clinical, half-time research. Wow, what a great story. And Sam? Dr. Campbell? So I, I did my medical school in South Africa. After a couple of years as a trauma physician, I went on a working holiday to Canada where I was a rural physician for about five and a half years. And then I did a emergency medicine residency at St. Paul's. Still on my way back to my homeland, I stopped in Halifax on the East Coast to have a look around. And, and that was 23 years ago. I was the clinical quality improvement guy for about 11 years and I've been chief there for about 10 years but my special interest has always been in the efficiency of how we provide care to our patients. So let's get into it. Most of our listeners out there are emergency physicians who just want to know how to take good care of patients and they want a knowledge base and a skill base and they want to go out and do good. And many people seem to be sort of scared away a little bit from systems and administrative issues. Dr. Ovens, why are systems and administration issues so important to understand for the doc who's in the emergency department seeing patients to really understand, especially when it comes to overcrowding? We say often that you get the leadership you deserve. Or historically, if you look at um, democracy's birthplace in ancient Greece, citizenship was more about your obligations and responsibilities than your rights and entitlements. So broadly, I believe strongly that we all have a general responsibility to be aware of our community's issues, challenges, and needs. And as emergency physicians, of course, we're experts in the problems of uh, the healthcare system and the emergency department specifically. And so to be good citizens, we should have some knowledge and awareness. And often, if we speak with one voice, we can be far more effective so I hope everybody doesn't necessarily have to go out and, and take an interest and uh, actively get on a committee or write a letter to their MP if they don't want to. But I think if you're aware of what the issues are, what the evidence and the facts are, then you will almost unconsciously become a powerful asset in the drive for change. The other thing I think we need to understand before we get into the particular causes of overcrowding and access block 
is sort of a historical perspective, if you will, of how overcrowding has developed over the last few decades. Dr. Ennis, do you want to take a stab at this one? Well, I think probably the reason that we got into trouble was because in the 90s, there were some government budget issues and governments across the country started looking at their number one expense, which is healthcare, and started cutting back hospitals. So the reason we got into trouble is by having a growing population, an aging population, uh, increased dependence on hospitals and technology, and at the same time, cutting back hospitals and technology. In the 90s, internationally, we had emerge overcrowding emerging as an international issue with ambulance redirection being a, a prominent feature and access block really being a tragedy that uh, caused many preventable deaths. And it was towards the late 90s, early 2000s that we started to see organized approaches to acknowledge and try to do something about it, whether that was uh, the COBRA laws in the U.S., which uh, had an economic aspect, but um, tried to uh, limit ambulance redirection in the U.S. You had, of course, uh, perhaps most iconically, the four-hour rule around 2004 in the U.K., in which Tony Blair politically specifically said he was going to end ED overcrowding. And a number of jurisdictions, including Ontario in Canada and later Australia, followed with some sort of targets and incentives. And as a result, I think the character of overcrowding has changed. We have probably internationally less ambulance redirection and more ambulance offloading issues. And I think uh, the patients in the emergency department are today sicker because the patients in the community are sicker. They're not staying in a hospital as long. And so the patients who stay in the emergency department generally have shorter length of stay, but are, are more complex and sicker than they were in the 90s. Crowding has shifted, but it hasn't gone away and access block is still with us. Dr. Evans, you had mentioned access block, and we're going to be talking about access block a lot through the podcast. I think we need to kind of get some definitions cleared away first. So Dr. Ennis, some say that the problem isn't really overcrowding, but rather that it's access block. So first, what exactly is access block and why is it a problem? I think we do have to stop talking about overcrowding because when we talk about overcrowding, people think that there's too many people who have wandered into the emergency department for no good reason. And too many people is not a problem that anyone thinks is a problem. When you express it as access block, uh, i.e. the inability to get the care that you need, that's a problem that everybody can agree we have to solve. So I think there's a variety of access blocks throughout the system, but the one we're clearly focusing on here is emergency access block, which is the inability to get timely emergency care. All right. I mean, we probably all agree that EDs have the greatest patient need and provide the greatest health benefit of any part of the healthcare system. We're a little bit biased there because we're all emergency physicians. How should patient need and health benefit be understood in order to understand ED overcrowding or access block? Well, the mission of the acute care system is to transform patients to health. And I think a patient need is defined by their health gap 
So someone in cardiac arrest has a large health gap because they have no heartbeat. Someone with a sprained ankle has a small health gap. So you could actually also define patient need by illness severity, by the potential health benefit that they can gain from being treated, and by the treatment intensity that they require. So these things, the need, the treatment intensity, are all front-loaded. The sickest patients are at the front door. So during a few hours in the emergency department, high-needs patients are getting high-intensity care. They're getting resuscitated, diagnosed. They're getting critical treatments initiated. The transformation to health continues once a patient's admitted to hospital. But by definition, the illness severity or the need and the treatment intensity or the benefit progressively diminish with time in hospital. And at the back end, where time is measured in days instead of hours, you have stable, relatively stable for the most part, convalescing patients who are consuming many more bed and nursing hours, but at the same time accruing less health gain. I think that's a, a brilliant way of, of framing the problem. And I think that as emergency physicians, we all intuitively understand that. But of course, for yeah. access block to be fixed, governments need to understand, the hospital needs to understand. Right. So I, I just wonder to what degree the governments and the, the power that be actually understand that issue. What we need government to understand is that this is a public health problem with real impacts on patients' health and, and morbidity and mortality. And unfortunately, we recurrently come across governments that either misunderstand the problem, mythology is pervasive in this issue. At many times, experts in healthcare will say that this is a problem of, that it's not in the emergency department, the problem is inadequate community care, often from people who are looking for money for their programs in the community, or they will say that this is a problem of uh, patient bad behavior going to the emergency department when they shouldn't be there. And government will also often look for simplistic solutions, which are, of course, always tempting to grab onto. They want to have a political solution. Their timelines are short. Or they may fail to understand the true nature of emergency medicine and where we add value. So the, although the four-hour rule was, again, an iconic moment in that somebody declared they were going to do something about ED overcrowding, they failed to take into account the value we add in emergency departments. So you often see governments speak about wait times in the emergency department, and they're talking about the length of stay. And therefore, they're conflating everything that we do that adds value in making a diagnosis or stabilizing or treating a patient with sitting and doing nothing. And the result is that um, we're going to clean the eMERGE out either by keeping people from going there who should be there or by making them leave within a certain time frame. And so when you got to the four-hour limit, you had to go either home or upstairs, whether your CT scan was done and told us whether you had appendicitis or not, whether we had given you a few hours of uh, treatment for your COPD to see whether you'd stabilize or whether you actually needed ICU rather than the ward. So I would say that more often than not, our governments have misunderstood the problem or grabbed at simplistic, unhelpful strategies. If I could add just one anecdote 
we had a former mayor of Toronto, this was all in the, uh, in the news, so I can tell the story, who had uh, atrial fibrillation, and I think it may have been complicated by some mild heart failure, who spent 12 hours in an emergency department, had ischemia ruled out, had his uh, failure cleared, and uh, had his atrial fibrillation cardioverted back to normal sinus rhythm, and for all I know, got started on uh, prophylactic therapy for embolic events. And all that was done in 12 hours, and he was discharged in good shape and complained to the press the next day how horrible the eMERGE care was because he'd waited 12 hours in the emergency department. And everyone who was involved was appalled. They thought they'd given him really outstanding care. The hospital explained all of this in the media, and the mayor gave a half-hearted apology But I think the impression that was left with most people was even the mayor had to wait 12 hours. Let's break down the conversation into ED input, throughput, and output of patients. So starting with input... What are the sources of ED overcrowding when it comes to the volume of patients actually just showing up in the emergency department? We all know that patients are getting older, more complex issues. Are there any other sources of just increasing volumes? Well, I think a big source of increasing ED inflow is actually the the presence of access blocks throughout the the healthcare system that we have. So we have access failures, I would say, everywhere in our healthcare system. So if a patient can't get a doctor, well, they go to an emergency department. If they have a doctor but can't get an appointment when they're sick, they go to an emergency department. If patients have a surgical complication, they get referred to an emergency department. If someone is acting up at a long-term care facility, they get sent to an emergency department. If there's a frail older person at home who finally hits uh, the end of the road and lands on the floor and can't get up, uh, even if this is a very foreseeable, predictable event, it seems often that the only plan is to send them to the emergency department. When uh, hospital programs can't manage their admitted patients, the response is, "Mm, just let the emergency department deal with it. So wherever you have access failures, uh, even specialist referrals or people waiting for complex imaging, they can't get that done. They get frustrated. They deteriorate. They go to the emergency department. So I think failures anywhere in the system are now driving a huge increase in ED inflow and a huge change in ED case mix so that what I do now is actually much less emergency medicine than what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand because I think most people just see the input in terms of overcrowding as aging population. You know, in Toronto, where where I work, it's just that there's more people coming to Toronto, so there's more people coming to emergency departments. But I think that's really important to understand. Complexity is the new acuity. We are we are seeing people who are surviving longer because of better medicine, but they're surviving with the damage that the disease that previously might have killed them has left them. So the output of the hospital, people are getting sent home 
from day surgery who used to spend a couple of days in hospital, people are being sent home in conditions that a couple of, maybe a decade ago would have been considered unstable. And of course, the expectation is that most of these will do well, but you're, you're taking the gamble that a lot of them will crash and they will come back to the emergency department. And then the often the services that treated them, you know, if you have your hip replaced and, and you go home early, but you come back in congestive heart failure, the orthopedic surgeon will say, well, it's not the hip. Um, and the internal medicine service will say, well, yes, you know, they wouldn't be in congestive heart failure if they hadn't had that surgery. So um, the processes, the complexity of people trying to avoid uh, accepting patients into their limited number of beds takes up time in the emergency department while you're deciding what to do with that person who's just been discharged after an orthopedic procedure and is now in congestive heart failure. Um, sometimes it'll even in, in Halifax, it might even take two days before we've, we've got someone to accept that patient who clearly can't go home. The issue of primary care is huge. We're, we're desperately short of primary care physicians and few um, emergency physicians nowadays have had adequate training or recent experience in primary care. So although I think that a shortage of primary care in the system is, is very bad for a system, um, primary care patients coming to the emergency department uh, might cause long waits for low acuity patients, but they're not the, the overcrowding, the access block problem that we're talking about. We're talking about sick people that need emergency care that can't get it because they're people that are not able to leave the emergency department. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the low acuity patients because I think there's a prominent myth out there that low acuity patients are the cause of ED overcrowding. So Dr. Evans, could you give us a little explanation of why it's a myth that the person who shows up with a cough and cold or a stubbed toe, are they're the ones that are causing the, the crowding in the emergency departments? Among the mythology is what proportion of patients these are. Often the studies use a retrospective methodology on what could have been safely managed in a primary care office and the patient has already been assessed and they look at their final diagnosis. And of course, if you have chest pain and your cardiogram is normal, it's easy to say, well, maybe you could have been seen somewhere else. But until we do the cardiogram, we, we don't know. And that cardiogram is extremely time sensitive. So retrospective studies have exaggerated the opportunity to divert patients. And then economic studies that are poorly done suggests that there's a cost savings which is inflated because they usually use the average cost of an eMERGE visit. That is, they take the total cost of running an emergency department, divide it by the number of visits per year, and they say, well, it's uh, $180 or $200 in Ontario for an average cost per visit. And if you use the average cost of a family doctor's office, you can save a lot of money. Of course, the marginal cost, for those of you who took Economics 101, the cost of seeing one more patient if the emergency department is staffed and heated and lit and open, especially to see a low-acuity patient who doesn't need fancy imaging, may not even need blood work, the marginal cost is going to be much lower. And in terms of uh, value-add to the patient, if continuity is an issue, because what we're seeing is an exacerbation of a chronic disease or you are one of those patients with a lot of complexity where knowing their med list and their problem list is a big part of addressing their issue, 
then seeing one of their uh, ongoing providers could be a big benefit to them. But for many of the patients who come to the emergency department with episodic acute illness or injury, which is not life or limb threatening, the emergency department is an extremely efficient place to see those people because we do have immediate access 24 hours a day, in most cases to x-ray labs, and often to cross-sectional imaging, often to consultations. And in today's environment, people expect that kind of service. They don't want to go to their family doctor today to have an ankle x-ray tomorrow, to get the result Friday, to be referred to an orthopedic surgeon next week. They want all that in one visit. And so people aren't that stupid. It's not that great to go to the emergency department. It's expensive to park. You don't know how long you're going to have to wait to be seen. You don't know what doctor you'll see. Yet the people are coming. Why? Because we add some value to them in many circumstances. And the real issue in access block are the patients who need to lie down, who need more complex care. Many of them eventually need a bed and they can't get upstairs and we can't get the next patient who needs a stretcher or a place to lie down. It makes me feel good that the reason for the high input of volume of patients is because we're so good at what we do. I would add to what Howard said in terms of the importance of inflowing low acuity patients. And one of the basic principles in operation science is that if your system has a block, you need to look for the bottleneck and focus on the bottleneck resources. And so physicians are usually not the bottleneck. And the reason they're rarely the bottleneck is if you have a very sick patient, a busy physician can be diverted to see that very sick patient. The usual bottleneck is the nurse-staffed stretcher. Because when you have a sick patient coming in the door, they need to go to a nurse-staffed stretcher. And we don't have those because they're all occupied either by sick emergency patients or growing numbers of admitted inpatients. So if you want to do something about this, you have to focus on the bottleneck and deal with the bottleneck resource, which means either creating more of those resources or eliminating, reducing the patients that are occupying those bottleneck resources. If you look at inflowing low acuity patients, no one in their right mind would put an ankle sprain in a nurse staffed stretcher. So low acuity patients are completely unrelated to our bottleneck resource. And that's why diverting them elsewhere, focusing on them, you may as well focus on like what kind of wax is being used on the hospital floors. Yeah, my understanding that the literature actually backs that up exactly. I think Michael Schul did a study about 10 years ago that actually showed that low acuity patients don't increase wait times, they don't increase length of stay in the emergency department. When it comes to diversion, I always say, don't focus on preventing visit to the emergency department, number one. What we really need to do is have good follow-up mechanisms in place to prevent visits two through seven, and that that would have a more profound effect on eMERGE volumes and a better effect on quality of care than trying to prevent eMERGE visit number one. Great. I like that. We're jumping ahead to solutions now, but that sounds like a, a really good one. Uh, we'll get into more detail of those in a little bit. So that's a little bit about input. And I think I've got a pretty good understanding now of 
the causes of high input into the emergency department, let's move to throughput. So we've got the patient in our ED now. Dr. Campbell, what are the causes of slow throughput leading to overcrowding? So the the emergency department is a is a machine just like any kind of production line. The Esplan model of input, throughput, and output does, however, suggest it's like a complicated machine as opposed to a complex one. So any strategy to increase throughput might work perfectly on one day and, and badly the next day because there's so many variables that will connect with each other in any particular day. I think approaching throughput requires a a culture where throughput is is valued where throughput is a principal aim of every single person in the emergency department from the emergency physician to the cleaner to the consultants who are involved when conditions in a complex system start unraveling it's important to have some kind of solid anchor and in most emergency department that's actually going to be the emergency physician who's in charge on that day so people will look to that emergency physician and this really starts with a, a sense of professionalism you know at the risk of sounding like a, a lecture from one's mother things like punctuality reliability respect to patients colleagues and coworkers then you can really help staff to work together with you to focus on flow at every stage. Um, and this might mean a number of things. Grant talked about identifying the bottleneck. If you are not the bottleneck, and for example, uh, a nurse being tied up with a sicker patient was a bottleneck, they will notice if you go and help the nurse do something or if you help bring another patient in or help another patient leave the department or something as simple as taking a patient a warm blanket or a glass of water. It's very important if you're thinking in terms of flow to try and identify the time-sensitive things that can be done early. So uh, before you pick up a patient, you should look and see what other patients are waiting for. Quite often we forget about a patient who's had an x-ray and we'll notice an hour later that they'd had the x-ray and we'd forgotten to go back to them. Triage is is the basis of what we do. We, We obviously want to see the sickest people first. But sometimes when people of equal acuity are waiting, it's helpful to identify the people who you can see and treat quickly before the ones who are going to obviously take a lot more time. So that while you're spending time with the slower patient, the bed of the previous patient is is being emptied and cleaned and a new patient is being put in it. All of the stuff that we talked about with access block in terms of beds being occupied by patients that we can no longer help affect throughput. If our beds are occupied by patients who should leave the emergency department, we're not going to be able to use those to put patients through. We also have physician throughput in terms of physicians taking longer to see patients, chatting, doing administrative stuff uh, when they should be seeing patients. We have schedules that don't overlap adequately, so people slow down toward the end of their shifts. We have nursing changeovers where nurses stop taking patients into the department half an hour before the shifts. We have unnecessary care. We have tests that are ordered that are not required or offer no benefit to the patients. We have overcare where patients are treated with IV antibiotics uh, unnecessarily or given treatments or kept overnight for their convenience, but to the severe inconvenience of patients that are waiting for their care. We have um, patients who are held out overnight to have an ultrasound in the morning because the uh, radiology department's unable to give us an ultrasound overnight. We have consultants who don't come down until their clinics are finished or until they're finished in the OR. We have junior trainees coming down 
who spend a long time assessing patients yet are, are unable to make decisions because they don't have the authority to admit or discharge the patient. Uh, we have consultants that wish to have their patients batched by residents. So the resident waits until they've seen five patients before they call the consultant to see which ones they can send home. Wow, that is a good long list. <laughs> yeah, that was the rant. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. Uh, any one of those are, are real problems that we face every day. When it's swamped in the ED, some of us sometimes tend to cut corners a little bit and rush through some of our assessments just to keep up with the flow. You know, we might order a CT head in a patient with a headache instead of doing a thorough neurologic exam. Can you explain how rushing through things and ordering more tests actually leads to longer lengths of stay and more overcrowding? If the bottleneck is the physician, the best thing for the physician to do is to do a good history and physical examination on the patient before they decide on the next step. That's the cornerstone of what we do as a profession. But it also allows us to spare our patients from a lot of iatrogenic interventions that, that offer them no benefit. And hold care away from other patients while they're in those beds. The issue of unnecessary tests raise another question. We hear often from patients who say the doctor walked in and said, my tests are fine, there's nothing wrong with me, I must leave. Patients don't come for a test. They might think they do and they might tell you they do, but they've really come for your expertise as a professional emergency physician. And if you sit down and, and they can see that you're, you're giving serious thought to their issues and you can explain exactly what the position is from your perspective and where they should go, they're more likely to leave happily than if you go and order a test and then come back and say the test is fine. In certain circumstances, when there is a test that is clearly indicated, and we have rules, the Ottawa ankle rules being the best known, it's very reasonable to get those rules applied as early as, as you can to the patient that's coming in. So stuff that's ordered in triage, elderly patient with shortness of breath and a cough and a fever is going to need a chest x-ray. So it's very reasonable to order the, to have those tests done before you see the patient. The advantage of that as well is to use wait times. As Grant was saying, any queue, any lineup is a waste of patient's time. So if you can occupy that patient's time with something that would be time-consuming somewhere else in the process, that's the right time to do it. But it's a very, very bad habit into doing tests before you've thought of why you're doing the tests because quite often that actually increases stay because you get results you didn't expect, and then you've got to do something with those results. A very common one is, is uh, in my institution, is routine blood tests. I don't, I don't think anything should be called routine, but uh, CBC and electrolytes in patients with uh, diarrhea. Uh, if their white count is up, they tend to stay longer, and if their electrolytes are abnormal, they never get treated, but they stay longer. So we're, we're asking irrelevant questions, when we have abnormal results, we don't treat them, yet they do result in longer stays. Work we've done in Halifax, and very similar to the stuff that Grant did a few years ago, to try and work out what types of physicians are more efficient than others. There have been a number of things found in different studies, but the one thing that's consistent amongst all the studies is the more CAT scans you order, the fewer patients you see. There's also trends for plain x-rays and ultrasounds, but it's it's uh, very strong in terms of CT. And anecdotally, we're not seeing patients who are coming back because they should have had a CT. And, and as an administrator, you do see those, especially in a closed system like Nova Scotia. 
I want to talk about something called paradoxical misallocation. That sounds like a, a complex concept. Dr. Ennis, we've all seen sick patients waiting in the hallways for hours. It's one of the most stressful parts of my job when I pick up a chart of a patient who's been waiting for four or five, six hours only to realize that their vitals are unstable and they need a treatment like four hours ago. Some people would attribute this to something called paradoxical misallocation. What is paradoxical misallocation and how does it kind of deepen our understanding of the the dangers of overcrowding? Well, we talked about how ethically we should focus our resources on the patients with the greatest need, so the sickest patients who are usually arriving at the front door, but this isn't really what we do. When undiagnosed, unstabilized patients arrive with acute pain, frequently occult critical illness, we often leave them lying in an ED hallway with no care whatsoever. Ironically, eventually, after these sick patients are stabilized and diagnosed and treated, as their need for care diminishes, they graduate to progressively better care circumstances. So from a waiting room to an ED stretcher, ultimately a a nice room on an inpatient unit. And what you end up with too often is that the sickest patients can't access care because all of the system resources are allocated largely to patients who are much less sick, uh, who have less care need, and who are gaining less health benefit from the resources that they're receiving. I have a story a couple years ago. My mother arrived at a high-level urban Canadian teaching hospital with uh, altered mentation. She was triaged to a hallway with a paramedic, and after two to three hours, close to three hours, I got a phone call from my father saying he didn't know what was going on. He was uh, worried. So I spoke to the paramedic and it sounded quite terrifying. So I phoned my friend who worked at that hospital and said, could you go down to the EMS hallway and see my mother? So he did and immediately recognized my mother was having a stroke. So after being there for three to four hours, She got an urgent clot extraction, but at that point there was enough damage done that uh, her stroke was not survivable. So this is an example of, uh, at the time, she would have been one of the 10 sickest patients in the institution, but she couldn't access care because all of the resources were allocated to far less sick patients. So paradoxical allocation of care is trying to make sure we assure comfort and privacy for stable convalescing patients while at the same time we're leaving acutely ill undefined patients in waiting rooms or hallways. It's a maldistribution that fails any sort of ethical sniff test that I could come up with. So Just in the last year, we tried to quantify this problem at 25 Canadian hospitals and found that on average, these urban emergency departments leave arriving high acuity patients in hallway non-care locations for an average of 46,000 hours per department per year. So that's 46,000 hours of emergency access block during which a lot of bad outcomes occur. And I knew you were going to ask this question about paradoxical care allocation. So I've come up with a skill testing question 
and I'm going to turn this, I'm going to reverse this and make this an interactive uh, session with you guys. I'm going to give you a question and get your answer. So it's awesome. This is a, a EM cases first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning the table. Yeah. Okay. So here's this case. Uh, a 34 year old man arrives with a severe headache and vomiting. No stretchers are, are available. So the patient is left in the waiting room. Which of the following is an example of paradoxical care allocation? A, an inpatient who was discharged this morning, but is waiting in the bed until later this evening when the patient's daughter will pick them up after work. B, a patient being held in hospital until Monday for an MRI, because if they were discharged, the MRI would take months. C, an ED chest patient who's stable, but is lying in a monitored stretcher waiting for a second troponin assay. D, a 92-year-old on an acute medical unit for two-plus months who's refusing transfer to long-term care. E, a patient with osteomyelitis staying in the hospital for six weeks rather than receiving outpatient antibiotics and staying in hospital because his physician fears he would return to injection drug use if discharged. All of the above. Do we have an all, the, all of the above option? <laughs> and of course, the, F, yeah, all a, of the above. A trick question. It's all of the above. So it's very, very common that I think we have paradoxical allocation of healthcare resources. And the other paradox is that a internist or hospitalist upstairs has from his sickest to his least sick patients in front of him. And paradoxically, the patient that most needs his bed is completely hidden from his eyes because it's being stored in the emergency department until he has decided to get rid of his currently least sick patient. Well, and that just goes back to the fact that regardless what program you're talking about, your sickest patients are at your front door. They're the ones that are coming in. They're not the ones that you've been looking after for whatever period of time. I want to talk a little bit more about access block from a 2018 systematic review of the causes, consequences, and solutions of ED crowding, they reported based on 10 studies that access block was a major contributor to ED overcrowding, as we've been talking about. But I understand that there's been a recent study that just came out in the March 2019 issue of CGEM that you authored, Dr. Innes and, and Dr. Ovens, that looked more closely at the relationship between access block and inpatient capacity. What did your study find and what should we take away from the study in the light of the rest of the literature on the, on the topic of access block? Well, the study found that there were, on average, very large emergency access blocks. I think I said 46,000 hours per ED per year of acutely ill patients blocked in hallways. So very large uh, problem for the emergency department. If you wanted to solve emergency access block, each of those departments would need to find that 46,000 hours of stretcher or bedtime in their system. But we also looked at the same time at the overall hospital resources, the bed counts, and it turns out that that 46,000 hours on average accounts for about 1% of the funded hospital capacity for the pertinent hospitals. So what is a huge problem for the emergency department would be a 1-2% problem for the hospital if the problem was looked at as a hospital problem rather than an emergency department problem. So the question is, 
in our healthcare system, is there 1% slack? Is there 2% slack or 20% slack? So I, I think what we were suggesting is that this problem, if it's looked at as a hospital level problem, is potentially quite solvable without huge inputs of new hospital beds and resources. Fascinating study. I I encourage you all to read it. So in terms of getting at the root causes of access block, why hasn't access block been solved? You know, based on your your study, it seems like it's something that can kind of easily be solved. Why hasn't it? We talked about a whole variety of things that contribute to access block, but I, I would say that the common root cause of access block is accountability failure and the lack of an accountability framework in our healthcare system. So if you just tried to imagine if we had an organized healthcare system, the first thing that leaders would do would be to identify the populations of care needs. They would identify programs and people responsible to provide for those needs, and they would define accountability zones. So an accountability zone, for example, Orthopedic surgeons would fix bones, uh, obstetricians would deliver babies, every patient would have a most responsible program, and those programs would have accountabilities. The key accountabilities would be you have to provide the care uh, for the patients in your accountability zone. You might need to have contingency plans because we know there's variability in healthcare demand. You would have to have some sort of queue management strategies so that your waiting patients aren't abandoned. But we don't have any accountability framework in our healthcare system. And as a result, programs don't perceive that they have these accountabilities to patients. So if they run into rising patient demand, they can't keep up with the, the care that's needed, there is no explicit expectation that they have to provide care for the patients in their accountability zones. And instead of figuring out how to deal with their access gap, it's just okay to close the front door and let some other program deal with your patient's needs. So the easy response is to close the front door. You just say, sorry, we're full, we're we're helpless, we can't do anything. And if you say that, then you don't actually have to innovate or devise an actual solution. But the problem with that is you close the front door, it blocks access to sick patients, it shifts care to programs that can't actually provide that care, And it displaces the consequences of access failure to other parts of the system. So when the consequences of the failure in one program get expressed in another program, the people who are capable of addressing the root causes no longer have to do so, while those in the impacted areas are incapable of doing so. So you just have a situation of perpetual dysfunction. But the system rewards programs profoundly for blocking access. So they control their workload. Their waiting patients are out of sight, out of mind. Their staff stress is reduced. Budgetary challenges are mitigated. And the program is basically protected from any evolutionary stressors that would normally force them to innovate and improve. Why have multiple systems initiatives not eliminated emergency access gaps if they represent only like 1% of inpatient capacity? I think there's been a failure to recognize that 1%. I think if you look at initiatives 
probably 80% of government initiatives traditionally have been spent on input. And we've talked about input not being the real problem and maybe 10% on throughput and output. A great example is the call lines, which uh, have been pretty much debunked. Um, you know, in a Cochrane review quite recently showed that I think of seven different papers they reviewed, six showed no improvement at all, and one said actually made things worse. Yet these are still, we're spending millions of dollars in Nova Scotia on a, on a call in line. All right, so we've talked about the problem of access block and crowding in the emergency departments. We've talked about some of the causes in terms of some of the systems causes, some of the department causes, the input, throughput, and output. I want to now move on to solutions, and I think that's what our audience really wants to hear about. What can they do to help alleviate overcrowding and make everyone's life better? So let's start sort of big picture with the sort of government systems solutions. Dr. Evans, what are things that have worked in the recent past, and what do you think will work into the future in terms of government system solutions? I think that at the system level, at the government level, you have to look at the big picture and provide incentives and encourage local solutions because the problems do vary a little bit from place to place. So again, I'll talk about the jurisdiction I know best. I think Ontario's had a fascinating, uh, we're in our 12th year of this uncontrolled experiment The centerpiece of our program to uh, reduce ED overcrowding is a pay-for-results program to provide financial incentives to our 73 largest emergency departments to improve their flow in a continuous quality improvement model. Pay-for-results. So explain to us how that works. How does pay-for-results work? Yeah. So in general, pay-for-results is a, a general term that refers to using financial incentives to achieve goals in healthcare, whether that's uh, physicians who are getting financial bonuses for achieving quality targets in their practice, such as how many diabetics have their uh, retina screened each year or what the average hemoglobin A1C is in their practice, to much larger issues in the U.S. Uh, For instance, there are financial incentives to reduce your 30-day readmission rate at the hospital level. And uh, in Ontario, what we did is we offered financial incentives to improve your ED flow metrics. And we measure six time intervals in the emergency department, right from time to see a physician to time from the order until you reach leave the emergency department for a bed. And we report these publicly. And in a competitive model, hospitals compete for a score, and that score determines their share of a pie of about $90 million Canadian per year. There's 73 hospitals. So if everybody performed equally, we'd all get roughly one point. And if we were all the same size, because there is a size modifier, every hospital get a $1.2, $1.3 million per year. And that's about 5% of the average emergency department's budget. So it's an incremental amount of money that's not huge, but not trivial. And it's really less meant to provide all the resources you need to improve flow, but more an aim to provide an incentive to improve flow. 
The experience in BC, Dr. Ennis, in terms of government solutions that have worked? In both BC and Alberta, we had some crisis opportunity moments where there were some very bad outcomes in waiting rooms and hallways. And that provided uh, an opportunity to introduce overcapacity plans. So we were successful in implementing overcapacity plans in Vancouver and Calgary, uh, not exactly at the same time, but very similar plans. This was a very simple concept. It was kind of a no patient left behind concept. And so the first step was that uh, sick arriving patients, high acuity CTAS 1, 2, and 3 patients who arrived at the emergency department had to be allowed into care locations. You weren't allowed to just block them out. And if there were no ED care locations available and certain criteria were met, then there would be a rapid displacement of the most stable admitted patient to the most appropriate inpatient unit on a no-refusal basis within about 15 minutes. And the criteria were pretty simple. If the emergency department was, I think it was at least 110% occupied, and if more than a third of the ED stretchers were occupied by patients who were either admitted or waiting for a disposition from an inpatient service, then if an urgent patient arrived requiring a stretcher, they would displace an admitted boarded patient to an inpatient unit. And of course, those criteria with 110% ED occupancy and at least a third occupied by boarded or waiting inpatients, that's all the time. So essentially, we, we had a plan that if a sick patient arrived requiring care and there were no care spaces, a boarded patient would be displaced to the appropriate inpatient unit. And what the data showed was pretty dramatic reductions in ED lengths of stay and about 50% reductions in the number of boarded patients waiting in emergency departments. And for quite a time, much improved access for emergency patients. Wow, congratulations. All right, I want to talk a little bit more about accountability. So, Dr. Evans, you had talked about government accountability. Dr. Ennis, how do you sort of implement an accountability framework for not just the government, but for the rest of the system? So... I think the important thing is to have the ability to have your emergency medicine leaders be effective enough communicators and credible with system leaders and be able to convince them that without an accountability framework, the system is not going to improve. I'm talking about a program level patient care accountability framework where you define the accountability zones who is responsible for looking for after patient A, patient B, and what does accountability mean? So accountability at a basic level means we're going to provide the location and the people to look after our patients. We're going to have contingency plans for surges and demand variability, and we're going to have some sort of plan for our waiting patients because we are responsible for them. And part of the accountability framework involves performance measurements. So 
In the emergency department, we might have EMS offload expectations. We might have ED throughput time expectations. And inpatient service would have consult turnaround time expectations. They would have boarding time expectations. And uh, at the inpatient level, they would also have expectations in terms of how long is their ED length of stay, you know, relative to other national length of stay comparators for that type of patient. And while we're talking about program expectations, you have to go beyond the hospital into the community and say, you know, we need expectations for how long does an ALC patient stay in the hospital and what is a limit for a hospital to keep ALC patients. Can I give you one anecdote of that in action? So in Ontario, we had a lot of problems with critical care capacity. And in most hospitals, access block was the strategy when all the ICU beds were full. We couldn't take any more patients to our ICUs. And sometimes they wouldn't even do a consult in the, in the emergency department. Well, there's no bed, so you're an emergency physician. You should be able to manage that patient. And in Ontario, a policy was instituted that every critical care unit had to develop a surge policy, which would allow them to surge to at least 15% of their volume. So if they had um, uh, 20 beds, they had to be able to surge to 23. And they could not ask for transfer unless they had that. They had to show the government that they had that policy in place. And it has virtually eliminated critical care transfers just related to capacity. Sometimes expertise is required that's not in one hospital, so they go to another. But nobody goes from one hospital to another just because there's no critical care bed. And that's really been transformative and really can be applied to almost every disease process and and discipline. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually implement the idea of, instead of patients boarding in the emergency department, spreading them through the hospital and the ICU takes another 15% and internal medicine takes another 15%. And, you know, we see 20, 30 patients admitted in the emergency department, but those patients go and wait in the hallways upstairs instead of in the hallways in the emergency department. How how does that process work? Because I understand that that is an effective way of of moving the patients through the system. Well, I I think The first thing is you need that accountability framework because right now, if you asked uh, an inpatient nurse or physician who's accountable for the admitted medical patient in the emergency department, they'd say, well, the emergency department is. And until there is some sort of framework in place that clarifies no, an admitted medical patient is actually the responsibility of the admitted medical service, then at least it becomes rational to say, we're going to move your waiting patients into your waiting room. And now you have to come up with some solutions or innovations to deal with your demand capacity gap. The the solutions I think are going to be different on every unit and they, perhaps they need more beds, more resources, more staffing. Maybe they need to change their staffing models. Maybe they need to match the the demand to the capacity. Maybe they need to reduce their lengths of stay. Maybe they need to move some of their services to outpatient services. It sounds like a lot of the things that we are doing in the emergency departments that perhaps some of the other units should be doing but aren't. I was talking with a leader in our hospital about the 
at that time, crushing number of boarded patients in the emergency department. And she said to me, you know, Howard, I have less complaints from patients about care in the emergency department. You guys are better staffed and have better morale. There are fewer union grievances than on any of my inpatient units. Why would I move work volume and risk from the eMERGE to one of my inpatient units? Mm -hmm. So any emergency physicians out there who are on any committees that have any intersection with the rest of the hospital really should be advocating for this exact kind of change in thinking. At least that's a first step if everyone can start agreeing that patients who are admitted to hospital should actually be admitted to hospital instead of in the emergency department. In terms of inpatient flow strategies, some of the things that could work, I've talked about Mount Sinai having a flow director and just establishing an accountability overflow. Again, that needs to be 24-7. It can't just be Monday to Friday during administrative hours. Multi-unit bed meetings at least once, sometimes twice a day, I think have also experientially shown to be major uh, assets at identifying which patients have which roadblocks to their discharge and making sure that you prioritize their ultrasound, their physiotherapy assessment, etc. A couple of more elegant solutions, I think, that haven't have shown in the literature to be very successful, that haven't gained traction. Tell us something about where some of our challenges remain. So the first one is the accountable care unit strategy, which was published in 2015. It's by Jason Stein and colleagues from Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. It's in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. But they just said that for flow and for patient-centered care, that there should be a unit-based team so that all the patients on one unit should belong to one medical team and all of a medical team's patients should be on one unit. And then everybody on that unit should make rounds once per day together at the bedside at a given time so that the patient and the patient's family caregivers know that the team will be there at a certain time. And then the whole team walks in, doctor, nurse, social worker, discharge coordinator, physio, occupational therapist, etc., and they have a conversation at the same time around the bedside. And it has shown remarkable improvements in efficiency, length of stay, quality metrics, staff morale, patient satisfaction, even mortality. And yet it's been very difficult to get it implemented in many different settings, uh, including in my own hospital, because we have developed provider-centric schedules, and we work as independent providers, and changing your daily schedule to suit patient need is remarkably difficult. People are very entrenched. So we have a very provider-centric system, and there are solutions out there, but we have to not only provide incentives and accountability, we also have to challenge people on their entrenched self-interest and way they approach their work. I'm really pleased with how Dr. Ennis has given us this great framework to think about conceptually how we need to change our thinking and how we've injected all these great sort of practical solutions in there. I want to move on to throughput in the emergency department and the solutions to throughput to not only improve efficiency, but actually 
improve patient care? I think from a throughput point of view, we talk about the throughput of the inpatient unit. So the inpatient units have to look at their own throughput well, their own input, throughput, and output. Um, and as the department gets more dysfunctional, the emergency physician needs to communicate that to the other destination of our output so that they do understand their role in what's going on in the emergency department. Once we've got that out of the way, our job is to be as efficient as we can in the department. First of all, having a sense of our mandate as emergency providers, what are we there to do? And that we make a point, especially considering that we are having a lot of non-emergency needs thrust on us, that we really have to focus on emergency needs. And this means resisting the temptation to order tests that could be done as outpatients. So uh, Grant's concept of reverse triage, where the hospital should be discharging patients with the lowest care needs, is also applicable in the emergency department. So we've been talking about you know, how we would expect inpatient programs to look beyond their front door and deal with their waiting patients, even if it's hard for them. And so in order to do that, I believe emergency departments have to walk the walk and say, you know what, those patients out in the hallway, those are our patients, and we're going to deal with them. And until you've done that, you cannot go to an inpatient program lead and say, this is what I want you to do, but I'm not willing to do it. So we went in, in Vancouver and Calgary, we went through a progression of things. One was to say, you know what, those patients in the waiting room, those are our patients. And so we're going to deal with them. So step one was physicians would go to the waiting room, examine the patients, do the best they could, get the tests organized. And patients loved it. Step two was actually building stretchers in the waiting rooms with curtains around them, taking a patient from a chair, moving them into a stretcher, and seeing those patients and getting their care uh, initiated and finding the time bombs out in the waiting room. Step three, because those things are difficult to do, was we, we had a retreat and we said, we're going to call this the no patient left behind retreat. And we got all the departments together and said, how are you going to change your operations if you are no longer allowed to triage people back to a waiting room? What came out of that was intake zones, and uh, patients are eligible to go to an intake zone if they are capable of sitting and there is no obvious life or limb threat. And as a result of that, we diverted huge numbers of patients away from our bottleneck, which was the nurse staff stretcher. So now 50 plus percent of CTAS 3s and about a third of CTAS 2s are managed without even making it into the emergency department. So you can deal with a lot of patients using an examining table and a waiting chair and computer order entry to get the CT scan. So if you have appendicitis, you will likely never make it to a stretcher. You will get your CT scan very quickly and you'll make it to an operating room. And when you do that, you find you free up a lot of acute nurse staff stretchers and you can offload ambulances. So that actually forces, that kind of philosophy forces the emergency department to not overuse nurse staffed stretchers when they're not necessary. The system that you described, Dr. Ennis, that has a beautiful flexibility built into it. Having that flexibility, I think that's just another thing in general with emergency departments in terms of making them work is your system actually forces 
your emergency department to be flexible, which I think a lot of the throughput problems occur because that physician says, I'm not going to see those patients in the hallway. I refuse to because that's not the way it's supposed to be done. And they're just inflexible. Or I'm only supposed to be seeing patients in zone A, even though there's 30 patients in zone B. Well, I'm just going to go have a coffee instead. When you can go to a medical advisory committee meeting and you can tell the uh, other department heads, this is what we're doing for our patients. And last year we saw 50,000 patients before they got into the emergency department. What are you guys doing? You actually start to have some leverage in terms of forcing change on other departments. So that's a really innovative sounding system that you've implemented Something somewhat related is having a physician actually at triage. In your system, what you're describing is you go and see the patient no matter where they are, whoever is needed to be seen, gets seen, whether they're in the waiting room or whether they're in the resuscitation room. What about physician-led triage, uh, where you actually have a physician just dedicated to the triage area? Are they effective? Do you recommend them? I know in some jurisdictions, they've been implemented because that decreases the time to see a physician and they'll get paid more by the government if they decrease the time to see a physician, but that's not necessarily taking better care of the patients. What do you think about physician-led triage? There's pros and cons. The most important question is, what's your physician resource like? And overall, in much of the world, and certainly in much of Canada, emergency physicians are in short supply. So having a physician at triage who's performing triage is a very expensive resource, and there's no published evidence I've seen that they do a better job than a properly trained nurse at triaging. If you expand their role to what some people call see and treat, see and release, so that they're also taking care of the dischargeable patients, it's almost like putting the fast track doc at triage, then they're could be some more value added. The problem is that the number of handovers starts to increase because they're only available to immediately see and release people if they keep their time per patient very brief. Otherwise, they start to form a queue and it's no different than if they were inside or outside. So in order for them to keep it very brief, they have to do some handovers if the patient has anything more than a very simple problem. And so you end up using an extra physician, you end up adding to the number of handovers you have, unless you have a model where paying that physician is no issue, and you have lots of eMERGE docs, it's not a very winning strategy. In most of the systems I'm familiar with, both the payment and the supply are issues, and so these haven't really taken off to any great extent. And my understanding as well is it varies very much on your patient case mix. So if you have a lot of pediatric patients in the, in the cold and flu season, a treat and release physician can be extremely efficient in terms of cutting down people that literally need a five-minute consult. All right. Any other suggestions about how to improve triage? The important thing is to keep triage brief so you don't create a queue of people waiting to be triaged. Don't add a lot of tasks to the triage nurse and uh, have a surge plan for the front desk also so that if you do have 10 people walk in 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 10 minutes, that somebody else goes out and helps the triage nurse. 
Dr. Robbins, I understand that you have sort of this uh, three-pronged approach to throughput in the emergency department in terms of solutions. The three easiest to implement high-impact strategies that are within the control of the ED physician and nurse leader are the following. The first one is apply the accountability framework that uh, Grant was so eloquent about. Your department should know who's in charge of ED flow 24 hours a day on every shift, whose responsibility is it to get people out of the waiting room, to make sure that you transfer people up when beds become available, that you arrange the transport home. That's a key function and somebody needs to be responsible for it and held accountable for how well they do it. Secondly, scheduling your staff, doctors, nurses, and other staff, including uh, clerical and registration staff, according to demand. Everybody who works in an emergency department can tell you the busiest times of day, the busiest days of the week. And are you staffed properly to reflect that there are more patients usually being seen on Monday than then Thursday, are you staffed to reflect the fact that uh, the middle of the day is a lot busier than the early morning? And do you have a surge plan so that if there is an unusual deviation from usual patterns of arrival, how quickly can you respond to that? And the third one we've talked about implicitly quite a bit, which is Grant very well described the limiting factor in most departments as a nurse staffed stretcher. So have you maximized care for patients who don't require a stretcher for their entire stay? Either a fast track where they just lie down to have their back examined or they're in a chair to have their wrist or ankle examined or what we call RASD units, rapid assessment zones where patients share stretchers. What Grant described in his waiting room sounds to me like a mobile waiting room RASD unit. But within the department, we've created internal waiting rooms so that patients who are stable but need some privacy for a cardiogram, a pelvic exam, or other intimate exam, or, or really need just uh, uh, some, some privacy for their history taking, can go into a room, have that done, but they're stable enough, young and spry enough that they can get off the stretcher and go back to the internal waiting room to wait for the results of their tests. Those three things any eMERGE department can implement using the resources they have today. And, and I think that the real core of that is don't put a patient in a stretcher or on a monitor if they don't need it. And the moment you know they don't need it, then get them out of it. So I want to go through some of the specifics of what patients really need in the emergency department and what seems to prolong their stay in the emergency department or cause problems later down the line. And the first one is cardiac monitoring. So anecdotally, I see patients put on cardiac monitors who really don't need to be. What are the indications for a cardiac monitor? So there are published reports that show that whether it's in the emergency department or in a telemetry unit on an inpatient floor, that the incidence of events of clinical significance while being monitored are vanishingly low and that we vastly overuse monitors and it becomes a bottleneck for flow both in the emergency department and to inpatient units. And we're very good at putting people on monitors. We're very poor at taking them off. So the indications I use to put patients on a monitor are, of course, if they're critically ill, hemodynamically unstable, altered level of consciousness, 
then they should be monitored and have close one-to-one or one-to-two nursing. As well, if you have what you think is uh, ischemic chest pain that's ongoing chest pain, or if you have a patient who you know has an arrhythmia or has unexplained syncope that seems high risk for an arrhythmia, sudden, uh, sudden drop attack, for instance, those patients can be put on a monitor. However, if, there can, if you get more information or their condition stabilizes, you should be aggressive about getting them off a monitor. And the nurses should be aggressive about asking you, does that patient still need a monitor? And similarly, I was involved in a quality improvement program at my hospital on the inpatient units for telemetry. And we put a time limit and there had to be a reorder of the telemetry order at 48 hours or it automatically canceled. And if you wanted to reorder it at 48 hours, you had to get an automatic cardiology consult. I don't know if that's really the best way to do it, but it did add some accountability for channel use. And we saw much better flow out of the eMERGE to people who needed telemetry channels with that program. All right. So that that's about who doesn't need to be on a cardiac monitor and who does need to be on a cardiac monitor. The other thing that we seem to overutilize and that slows things down and ties up our nurses are IVs. I see a lot of patients getting IVs who probably don't need IVs. The patients that, um, Howard has just said, don't need a cardiac monitor, usually don't need an IV unless there's a specific medication that can only be given IV. So a patient who is moderately dehydrated but tolerating oral fluids should be placed in a chair and, and given oral fluids or discharged and given oral fluids. There have been a number of studies in the past couple of years showing that IV antibiotics have extremely low benefit over oral antibiotics. All of the oral antibiotics we use have a very high bioavailability. And if a patient can swallow and they have a reasonable elementary system, they should be taking the antibiotics by mouth. We probably do way overutilize IV antibiotics over PO uh, and IV rehydration over PO. There's also good evidence that oral rehydration is just as good, if not better, in mild to moderately dehydrated patients, both pediatric and adult. At North York General, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that we still call it routine blood work, but I think that that so term in Halifax, it's should just on be the chart. yeah, that exactly it should just be eliminated because there's there's nothing that should be routine about routine blood work. Grant and I have a special interest in this. I don't think anything should be done without thinking about why you're doing it. But the same goes for um, diagnostic imaging, Foley catheters. There are a number of interventions that we do for nursing or physician convenience or because it's just what we do and we need to stop and think. If anything that ties a patient to a bed or ties a patient to an emergency department without offering them a particular benefit should be avoided at all costs. I I would agree with Sam that there's no such thing as a routine test. You have to have a reason to order a test. However, if you have a situation, somebody older than 30 with abdominal pain or chest pain, and if you know that 80% of those people are going to get a CBC and liver profile or a troponin level, then maybe it makes sense to have a nurse-initiated protocol so that when you see the patient 90 minutes or two hours after they've arrived, that test result is back. So testing is a double-edged sword, and I 
I could be convinced that there are some circumstances where it may be beneficial to initiate the testing if you're pretty sure it's going to happen anyway. Well, actually, our nurse-initiated protocol decreased our blood tests. So when the nurses were were, were able to use their um, clinical judgment, um, and we, we just recently did a qualitative thing with our nurses, they tried to anticipate which doctor was going to see the patient. And they really appreciated the nurse-initiated protocol because it really honed down that if the patient has this, these are the tests that the doctor is likely to order. The doctor is still allowed to order whatever he wants. However, we found, in fact, from a monetary point of view, in the first six months, we saved $206,000 worth of tests just from um, tightening up a nurse-initiated protocol. I would just say a word in favor of nurse-initiated protocols or medical directives. I was involved in a project in Ontario in 2005 to develop some templates around these that were evidence-based. And among the benefits, first of all, driving your group to discuss a consensus approach to consistent care around what's evidence-based for basic bread and butter testing in the emergency department. That's a good thing to do because practice variation we know usually is a sign of uh, some poor practice. Parallel processes patients so that for many routine things, you can see them once instead of twice because the results may be there when you go to see them. So it's been published to, to decrease length of stay. And the third one is, in my experience, nursing satisfaction goes up when they're allowed to practice to their scope and they know what needs to be done and they're not allowed to do it is very frustrating for them. So I think nurse-initiated protocols are high on the list of strategies uh, that add value also. And I might add nurse discharge protocols are also very useful, um, where we have nurses who, if, if you say to a nurse, I'm waiting for a second troponin on this patient, and if it's fine, he can go home, you can empty that bed a lot quicker than if the nurse has to track you down and say, can, I, you know, can this man go home now? Absolutely. We established that one of the problems in the emergency department is the delay between the decision that the patient needs to be admitted and them actually going upstairs. There's also the delay between you picking up the phone and speaking to to the consultant and the consultant agreeing to see the patient and then that team coming down or that consultant coming down and actually seeing the patient and then admitting them. What are some strategies to ensure earlier review by admitting teams that'll help alleviate ED overcrowding? Like how exactly do you get admitting teams to actually see patients faster? So one strategy that we worked out, it's uh, been published, was work we did with our general internal medicine service. Uh, they were working in serial. A junior would see the patient do a complete history and physical, review the entire story with their senior, who would then call the staff and then they would write orders, and only then could admitting come and screen the patient for what kind of bed they needed and everything else. So I actually personally made the suggestion, why doesn't the senior do a quick review? Because probably 80% of our referrals are a slam dunk admission, and write some admitting orders to which team they're going to, so that admitting can start to do their job, and we can parallel process some of this. And uh, 
to their credit, our internal medicine service liked the idea. One of our hospitalists picked it up as an academic project and uh, developed a protocol to teach the house staff how to do it. And it dramatically decreased uh, time from referral to departure for the floor. And on top of that, she offered to provide feedback to the uh, to the residents, she wasn't involved in their evaluation. She merely got the data from the hospital and showed them after a couple of weeks what their performance was in terms of um, time from referral until the admitting order was written. And what she found was that the house staff very quickly regressed to the mean when if they were slower than their colleagues and they were shown that they were slower, they sped up. They got one common strategy session from the hospitalist on efficient practice. So that was a very positive intervention, which is published in um, British Medical Journal of Quality and Safety. And it's pretty simple, and it would work in just about any setting. One of the rationale for doing that is to say, look, we have 30,000 admissions a year. If those patients each wait four hours for a decision to be made, that's 120,000 hours of ED stretcher time. I could treat, you know, 30,000 more patients a year just in that time. So it is really critical that we have these time limits. And uh, all of the services uh, ultimately went along with it. And some of the services, like our hospitalist service, the head of the hospitalist department took this on, got very excited about it, and actually started tracking his individual members and feeding back to them. And we got these amazing improvements in hospital response time. So when things are falling apart in the emergency department yeah. and the charge nurse comes to you and says, do something, and you've spoken to your consultant services and you've done what you can, and it seems that there's nothing else you can do, there is always something you can do. Find the thing that you can do. Find the bottleneck that you can address and address it. And in many ways, it might be as simple as going and if you have double coverage, speaking to a colleague and letting him know that the patient that's waiting for a CT scan should be sitting in a chair and not in a bed, or that the person who's waiting for a hemoglobin after getting a blood transfusion can actually get that hemoglobin from his family doctor mm -hmm. and follow. What about physician assistants, scribes, and nurse practitioners? Is there any evidence out there that adding physician assistants or scribes or nurse practitioners can help doctors see patients faster? I think there's some evidence that scribes or, or physician assistants help physicians be more productive, and I think that comes mostly from the U.S. This comes back to the bottleneck concept, and if the physician is a bottleneck server, then you need to unload that server, take away all the tasks that you can, so that they can be efficient and just do what it is they need to do. At my hospital, we've successfully integrated both nurse practitioners and physician assistants, not scribes. And we have demonstrated to our hospital administration that flow is improved on the shifts where an alternate care provider is present. And it's been a huge boon to physician morale to have somebody uh, like that uh, working with them. They feel like it's a partner that does offload some of the more mundane tasks in some ways and helps them with flow. We've had a lot of success with uh, department-based paramedics. 
So all of our procedural stations are done by critical care paramedics. And then our fast track area is run entirely by paramedics. There are no nurses in our fast track area. And they do suturing, casting, IV antibiotics, uh, and a lot of the administrative stuff, you know, clinic follow-up and organizations like that. And they act very much as physician extenders. They're not an independent practitioner. The physician sees every patient and then the paramedics... uh, carry out the the orders that would have taken physician time. Um, and although in our department, which is 47 beds, six of these belong to that pod and about 30% of the patients go through those six beds. Uh, so it's a very, very rapid turnover. So when it comes to ED overcrowding, I've heard the words lean thinking thrown around quite a lot. In an Annals of Emergency Medicine review on lean thinking, they reported that it reduced length of stay, the proportion of patients leaving without being seen, and improved wait times. Patient outcomes often improved as well, but pretty rarely. And one interesting thing that they reported was that staff were less prone to aggression, more courteous, more satisfied with their jobs, and less likely to quit after lean was implemented. There was even more time available for supervision and education. Sounds pretty good to me. So what is lean thinking exactly, and how does it help improve flow through the ED? Lean thinking is adapted from industry, specifically from the Toyota Motor Company, and it's a specific approach to quality improvement. And the the word lean is descriptive in that it's trying to see, if you think of your math training you got bonus marks for the most elegant solution. Don't just get the right answer, but get it in the least number of steps. So just as in math, elegant is the shortest route between two points. In uh, process improvement, lean is kind of the simplest or shortest way to get to where you want to go and is a way of looking at your processes, documenting them very carefully and saying, how can we do this faster, more efficiently, more simply? Lean is not a magic bullet, and I think that was very well demonstrated in Canada by Saskatchewan, where there was a provincial mandate and a lean sort of czar hired, and it was a very top-down approach, and it overall, I think, uh, failed. So I don't think there's any magic to lean, but I think that general philosophy of continuous quality improvement using some sort of structured approach really is important to have in your department today, not just for overcrowding and efficiency and flow, but also for many quality aspects of the care that we give. And, you know, there are a number of critical factors which people can look up on their own, but, you know, the group has to be ready for change. There has to be some buy-in because part of the philosophy is that the frontline staff contain the wisdom from what they do every day to understand where the uh, redundancies are and frustrations are in process and how to improve it. And it certainly has a role in making our departments better. Lean becomes this big, complicated thing, and I think that's why it often fails. But I think if you can just make it very simple and say, We're going to simplify our processes. We're going to reduce the number of steps. We're going to look at what we do, and we're going to remove stuff that doesn't add value. That's what you need to do. I want to talk a little bit about EMR. I remember as clearly as day when 
Stuart Swadron closed the EMU conference a few years back with a talk that described the problems with the dependence on computers in the ED that he worked in in LA. And more and more Canadian hospitals are now adapting EMRs as well. He showed this telling wide-angle photograph of his emergency department, and in the foreground were about a half a dozen nurses and doctors sitting in front of computer screens typing away, and in front of them were a dozen or so patients in stretchers all by themselves. It was a real vivid image of how using computers in the ED has forced us to spend less time with patients and more time with screens, which intuitively really can't be good for patients. You know, it's only a matter of time before pretty much every ED in North America uses physician order entry and computer-based tracking systems. Now, some would argue that it's good for tracking quality of care. It's quite controversial. I mean, I think the individual physician who's in the trenches is often frustrated to no end by computers and having to use them. And I see the time that physicians are spending with patients getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we become more and more dependent on computers. Do you have any tips on how we can spend more time with our patients, less time with our computers, and be more efficient in the ED, even though the powers that be are telling us that we have to use physician order entry, for example? The single biggest success predictor is the level of physician engagement when a project is being implemented. If you leave it to the IT people and or the nurses, it will not be customized to the physician's needs. And then they'll be very angry and frustrated. Secondly, you have to be very aggressive about hardware, where you put computers, how many, how you log into them, how you maintain them, how physicians compete, because we move around the department, whereas nurses are generally in one space. So that each nurse owns a computer and each merge doc is fighting for computers every time they move from one patient to another. And I think in the future, we'll see increasing benefits from things like single sign-on rather than logging in uh, using face or fingerprint or other uh, swipe card logins, voice recognition. I think that's going to be a benefit, but it will be a continuous struggle. Is a human going to have to adapt to the machine and the IT team, or will the IT team and the program adapt to the workflow of the physicians? It's really up to us to stand up and make sure that these things are customized and implemented in a way that works for us. So we've talked about a few individual solutions to alleviating overcrowding. Any other sort of solutions for the ED docs in the trenches to help alleviate overcrowding? Well, a couple of useful things to remember. The one is before you pick up a patient, review the patients you've got. So don't have someone who could be ready for discharge waiting while you're seeing another patient. You know, we all walk into a room and you see a difficult decision coming. Difficult decisions don't get easier if you wait. If you see a difficult decision, address that decision right away. If a patient is angry because they waited for a long time, apologize for the wait. I know it's not your fault. They probably know it's not your fault, but they're angry. Get that out, get the anger out of the way at the beginning of the visit, and then you spend a lot less time trying to keep the patient happy and you spend more time honing in on their condition. Yeah, I would add that uh, one way that I try to explain situational awareness to young physicians is you don't have to do everything yourself. You're the captain of the ship. You're the conductor of the orchestra. 
And if there's something you're doing that somebody else could do just as well, whether that's the nurse, whether that's the consultant, whether it's uh, an extender in your department, delegate, 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 and maintain situational awareness. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, related to that, you know, I see emergency physicians get very excited about repairing tendons in the hand, but they spend 40 minutes repairing the tendon in the hand when there's 20 people waiting in the waiting room, when, you know, the plastic surgeon will almost for sure do a better job and those 20 patients will be seen a lot faster. So there's the opportunity costs. The same thing can be said for a whole variety of procedures that could be done by someone else. And you really need to sort of prioritize your patients in that, in that respect. Maybe the most important thing I can think of offhand is something Sam mentioned earlier, which is if the patient doesn't need this done today in the emergency department, don't do it today in the emergency department. Arrange it as a follow-up test or intervention. Going into the home stretch here, what do you see happening in the next 5 or 10 or 15 years from a systems, hospital, ED, or individual perspective when it comes to ED overcrowding? I tend to be an optimist. And in the age of information, positive experiences spread very rapidly. So I'm guardedly optimistic that uh, over time, the strategies that we've talked about will gain traction and incrementally that our efficiencies will continue to improve, but I wouldn't bet on it. I don't think I can tell you what will happen in the future. I can tell you what I hope will happen in the future. And and we discussed all of these points. I think that 20 years ago, the patients that I saw were a much narrower spectrum of emergency department patients who had an acute illness. And increasingly, my case mix is patients who have diverted from the right place because they can't get care in the right place and they've come to the wrong place. And so a whole bunch more of my work is stuff that I wasn't trained to do and patients who aren't really in the right place to get the right care. And so I think it's going to be uh, incumbent on emergency leaders to start looking at uh, who is populating their emergency department and starting to try and identify patients and things that they should not be seeing and doing in the emergency department and negotiating with other programs and services to take those patients back so that patients are actually getting the right care in the right place. And my practice is, again, more focused on the things that I was trained to do. I share Howard's optimism. In Halifax, in the last five years, our census has gone up 20%. Our um, acuity has gone up significantly, and our age has gone up about three years of average age of patients. Yet our weights are about the same. So we're marking time as things get worse. But I do notice um, when I have conversations with other people in our system that they no longer talk about emergency overcrowding. They talk about hospital overcrowding. They do start recognizing the need to um, take more accountability. They're not, they're not achieving it yet, but they're starting to see their role in, in the system. I've spent a lot of time with long-term care people and they're starting to recognize their role and the home first programs and all the, all of the ways of trying to make long-term care facilities more efficient. And I think this will actually happen. 
more patients are going to come and they are going to be older and sicker. But I think we're understanding this better, we're communicating it better, and I think we should have a sense of hope rather than uh, a sense of despair. I love the optimism because I can tell you that you know, on the ground, when I'm speaking to my colleagues, oh, there's a, so there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of pessimism out there. Yeah. So uh, that's a great message to send out. Yeah. So our hope, really, all of us, I think, after you listen to this podcast, is that you'll change a few things that you do on your next shift that you can do. Some of the little suggestions we made to help improve flow and alleviate overcrowding, and not only that, but you'll advocate for change in your ED, in your hospital, and your government so that your job satisfaction will improve, you're better able to take care of your patients in the way that you know how and the way that you were trained, and ultimately improve the lives of your patients and your colleagues. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Dr. Ovens, Dr. Ennis, Dr. Campbell, your insights were just incredible. I mean, the perspectives that you have in the years of experience really, I think, came through. And uh, having the mix of a greater understanding of what the system's problems are uh, and then the practical things that we can actually do on the ground, I think was really fabulous. So thank you very much. Mm-hmm.